You are listening to Proof Text, a Glossa House podcast exploring scripture with Dr. T. Michael W. Halcombe and Dr. Frederick J. Long. Welcome and enjoy. Welcome, everybody. I'm Professor Fred Long, and this is uh, our Greek reading group through the Gospel of Luke. And we are looking at chapter one, and we ended last time with uh, verse 29. And there was an optative that we saw that is kind of a neat um, construction in Luke. When there is uh, past tense narration using aorist tense or imperfect tense verbs, and then you have a subordinate clause, in classical Greek, you you could pop that subordinate clause into the optative mood. If you wanted to retain vividness, a bit more vividness, you could retain um, the original uh, mood that could be used there. But the optative was uh, more typical. And particularly Luke has a tendency when there's an indirect question to use the optative uh, in, in what's called a secondary sequence. So that's where we ended up last time. Potopos is a uh, interrogative adverb that marks a quality, uh, or it's an ad- adjective, yeah. Uh, and what sort of kind of greeting is this? In my marking system, you're seeing my Greek text, if you are joining for the first time, Uh, I've set a filter inside of Logos Bible software to indicate certain constructions which are in focus for exegesis. Now, it doesn't mean that the other things can't be treated or that there aren't other things to treat, but these are particularly uh, productive areas to research uh, and to note when doing exegesis. So brain are conjunctions or, or particles what are called connectors, non-indicative mood verbs, are participles, command forms, for example, optatives. These are in red. These are things that are worth looking at more carefully. What kind of construction are they in? Purple are prepositional phrases, uh, prepositions and phrases. Orange are pronouns. And uh, there's a few other types of markings. For example, yellow highlight indicates what I call perfect tense verbs with a dash in front. So imperfect, pluperfect, and imperfect. So these are worth worth noting noting because because these these verb tenses are are unusual. unusual. So when you see see them, them, you should should take particular note note and and ask why. why. Blue are are adverbs, adverbs. and every now and then we'll see a a pink, which has to do with verbs that are marked for quality, stressing the quality of something. And every now and then we'll see a gray text, gray highlight. Gray highlight marks words of quantity, specification, all, every, whole, and then numbers, cardinal numbers, one, and uh, pass, you know, so here's a place, uh, a set of verses that has a lot of, of quantitative specification. Usually there's a rhetorical purpose behind that specification. So that's what that signifies. So megas is a kind of a, a size a specification or a, a qualification that's worth asking and noting. You know, why is that being used? So this is just explaining some of the color coding. And I see a question. So how do you set up those color coding schemes? Yeah, good question. So inside of Logos, anyway, I have a, uh, a sheet that explains how to do that. How do you set this up? You go to documents. Okay, it's a type of document. And then in the left column, scan down to visual filters and open up a new one, give it a title. You're off and running. So this is what it should begin to look like. And then uh, here's the legend. 
Second, define filter features. These are select morphology in the upper right-hand corner. So here you can see that there. And then you, here's the syntax you use, the ampersand uh, to set up, to tell what part of speech and the, to define it. And then, um, yeah, so you can see this whole thing. I guess I can probably upload this to my YouTube channel when I uh, do this next time. And then for to, to get uh, quantitative specifiers, which are gray highlight, I used low and NIDA, uh, NIDA uh, semantic domains. So here's the syntax for how to do that. But then I also kept running into different words that weren't included there. And there's probably some redundancy. And so I added just more uh, things. So, and uh, so here's a listing of lemmas. And then repeat this. I think you need to repeat it for each version that you want to apply this to. Yeah. Yeah, I can share that on the Facebook post someone asked. Okay, so visual filters, and I've just found this to be very helpful in my uh, reading of the Greek New Testament. And as I teach exegesis, and actually my Instep with God's Word, if you if you have not seen my Instep with God's Word, it is my exegetical manual. Of course, I'd love you all to run out and buy a copy of that, but it's a, it's a, I put a lot of work into this manual. It came out of a discipleship program for the church, teaching lay people how to study scripture. And then I eventually developed this into a 12-step process of moving through a passage, looking at it from different vantage points that are traditional areas of exegesis, like considering context, for example, doing textual criticism, textual comparisons, grammatical study, semantic analysis. Uh, in my description of grammatical study, I work through these filters, uh, these areas, and have discussions on pronouns and that kind of thing. But you can see the flow, the workflow of these different 12 areas. Intertextuality is covered in scriptural correlations, historical context. Anyway, uh, this is written at three levels typically is a primary level, uh, which I call primary survey for lay level. And then this, the secondary study is for people who know a little bit of biblical languages, uh, assumes Greek and knowledge of Greek. So that's called secondary study. And there it is, secondary study. And then there's a uh, this is for people training to be pastors, particularly, although some lay people may know enough uh, to be able to, to, to do this kind of study. Each of these ends with a set of interpretive procedures, which kind of guides you through best thinking practices in terms of uh, a workflow. Uh, so I'm trying to develop skill sets based on best practices and uh, resources that people can use. And then the third level is called tertiary research, which is for postgraduate students, particularly, it's a little bit more open-ended. I actually use this textbook for my uh, doctoral seminar to teach them research methods and writing uh, academic papers. So uh, it's a pretty, pretty substantial piece of work needs to be updated probably. You can see there's a lot of exercises, like uh, suggested exercises that are in gray boxes. And uh, anyway, a lot of fun. But if we would go to chapter three, we could see how chapter three is aligned with these visual filters. And I uh, treat these areas here. Parts of, we start with parts of speech. This is, again, the primary survey, which is a lay level. So I don't get into original languages. But people can be trained a lot in exegesis and in good observational skills by working, you know, kind of learning certain categories and, and these kinds of things. You can even do the kind of constituent marking that I teach in my Quentin Greek Grammar textbook. You can do that in English. 
and uh, it's very productive and you can do it in English. Like this is a great example to uh, John 3.16, a verse that we know pretty well. There's actually a lot going on there, a lot to think about. And so this is my marking method there. Here's the interpretive procedures. Then we go into secondary study. I always like this picture. This was written by a Sophie Hollington. She gave me permission to use this. Uh, but do you see what's written there upside down in Greek? This is a student that's like, I have so much work to do. But it says, Elpis, there is hope. So I love that. So here's my constituent marking again. And then we go into the conjunctions and particles. We begin there, go to uh, probably prepositional phrases next. I can't remember. Look at pronouns, types of pronouns. So these visual filter actually provides a guide, I think, to sound exegetical practice. Places uh, to note of particular uh, importance in the text to probe. So, all right. We are in verse 30, and uh, I'll go ahead and read the Greek text, and you can follow along here uh, if you'd like. So, ke ipen o angelos avte, me fobu mariam evres gar karin parato theo. And the angel said to her, this angel came to Mary and says, you're graced. The Lord is with you. <clears throat> she was wondering what sort of greeting is this? So the scene is kind of unfolding and the ke connects it as a kind of a equal event in the unfolding story. The angel said to her, here you have an instance of the dative case being used for the direct object rather than pros of tone. So we're going to be seeing some instances of pros. And again, I, I, I come at Greek language from different perspectives, pragmatics, that is language in use, and also from a construction perspective. And so authors have choices between constructions. And so when I see choices being utilized, we need to understand those constructions. What is the semantic marking conveyed in them? And then also what is the pragmatic effect of using one construction as opposed to the other? And here, avte is the default said to her. If you want to change the marking of this, you could have added a pros and then put the avte into the accusative case, pros avtein. That would be bringing this into more prominence. <clears throat> so for some reason, this is kept at just the default. But we do see instances where there is more marking and more prominence afforded to that recipient of the speech. And so I've mentioned this in the past, if you look at my previous <clears throat> Greek reading groups, we talk about that. So, and the angel said to her, do not be afraid. This is phobu. This is second singular um, from phobeome. And this is uh, present middle imperative, second singular, middle formed, I should say. Verbs of emotive state are middle because of the subject affectedness. The subject is participating in the action of the verb. It's interesting. Praying is such a thing. That verb pras, pras evkome is a middle formed. Verbs of motion, parevome, erkome, those are middle formed. Well, if you think about it, because people do their own locomotion, and so the subject is affected by their own actions. So we're learning and thinking differently about what used to be called deponent verbs, in my textbook, I call them middle-formed. So until we have a better name for them, that's, that's what I'm going to go with, middle-formed, and, and we need to pay attention to the, the subject-effectiveness of it. And here, what is notable is that you have a prohibition, and typically prohibition constructions use the aorist subjunctive, that is a construction, 
And so when you don't have an aorist subjunctive with may, you're having may with the uh, an imperative form, and often that's going to be present imperative. It's construing the command differently. And here, there's a con- uh, the imperfective aspect of the present tense is suggesting ongoingness. So do not be being afraid. Uh, keep being not afraid. It's hard to translate. And this is why we need to have exegesis and, and preachers and, and teachers of the word who can convey this in their explanation. Do not be being afraid. I mean, it's, it's wordy, but that's that's what's being conveyed here. Now, why would why would Mary be in a continual state of, of fear? Well, he's going to say, you're pregnant. And moreover, you know, she's going to say, I haven't been with a man. I haven't been, I haven't known a man. So there's a lot for her to be fearful about because she's going to be in a vulnerable situation. Basically, she's a teenage, she's a teenage pregnancy situation. And so there, there can be a lot of anxiety. So the, the, the don't be being afraid is, is pertaining to the larger setting of her, not just this encounter, but what else, what is going to be happening further on. And this is explained with the Evres Gar clause, which is a supportive uh, statement. So Gar marks support or strengthening. And Evres is the aorist active indicative from Evresco. This is a second aorist verb, second singular. Uh, you found favor with God. Now, this is wrongly marked, Karen. This should not be blue. This should not be blue. This should be accusative. It's a simply accusative case now. So this is something that uh, I note every now and then is that you have mistagging in the underlying Greek texts. These are mistakes. So you, you can't just woodenly accept uh, the, the marking and some of the searching because you do have mistakes. That should not be blue. It's, it's thinking that it's from cotton, uh, which is the preposition I'm thinking, but it's a mistake in the underlying tagging with databases. And so databases are flawed as well. So I'm going to mark that red to alert me you know, in the future that it was mistagged. This is simply a direct object, favor, grace. The word grace and favor is such a big concept. Um, It gets into the notion of benefaction. And this word can mean thanks, and it can also mean favor, which shows both sides of the relationship. Someone gives favor, and in response, one gives thanks. So there's places in Paul where he uses kadas, to to convey the idea of thanks. And this gets into the big concept, cultural concept of benefaction. A great book to gain access to windows of culture is David De Silva's Kinship, Honor, Honor, Kinship, Purity, and Benefaction, or something like that. You can find the book. He just is put it into its second edition. It is a great read. You won't read scripture again the same uh, after reading that. Now here, um, so Miriam is evocative. Notice that it's set up by comma and commas. So that's easy to identify. Miriam is a, is a Hebrew loan word. It doesn't show regular Greek endings. And so that happens with loan words. I talk about that in, when I, in my Koine Greek grammar. That's something I think helpful for beginning students to understand. Now you have found favor. Is it with God? From God. Here the NASB translates it as with God. Now, para is an interesting preposition to note here, and it has to do with um, notice that para can be used with genitive, dative, or accusative cases. Prepositions sometimes show variety. And so, what does para with the dative connotate? There's a little bit more here. Than meets, than meets the eye. So if I go to my main lexicon BDAG, Bauer, Danker, Arndt, and Gingrich, 
I cl click on para, I open, I can open that up. With the genitive, it gives a bunch of entries with genitive, but we're looking for the entries with the, the dative. So I have to go down a little ways with the dative. And here we start getting some sub uses, definitions and uses. It, it's the dative case is marking uh, location, I think. So beside near, but notice that it can also say, uh, be a little bit more, a uh, uh, little bit more perspective or insight. So in view, uh, the marker of one whose viewpoint is relevant. So that may be what's going on, but, but para may be indicating something more like the source of the grace. And so it may be that there's some personal reference or some personal involvement. Um, so marker of connection of a quality or characteristic with a person that doesn't seem to fit here, but here he is, marker of a relationship with a narrow focus among or before. Anyway, para is important because I, I think it's marking some kind of closeness of relationship that Mary has in what's happening. And, and, and that relationship, of course, the Roman Catholic tradition, you know, God bearer, um, you know, there is, there is some, some, some basis for, for really thinking about Mary as having a special relationship with God. I believe they go too far, obviously, to venerate Mary as, as God-like uh, or whatever, but, but this construction does suggest that there's a special favor and a closeness with, with God that's taking place. And we're going we're gonna to understand why, because in the next verse, we're going to have an explanation of what and what that constitutes and what that consists. Que edu sulepse en gastri, que texe huion, que caleses sees to onima of tu yezun and behold so the idu is a technically from the history of the language it is a an imperative form hence it receives a red uh, non-indicative mood uh, marking or tagging in my visual filter behold it is an attention getting device it's drawing attention to what follows that it's particularly important and then we come across a very interesting and, and kind of a difficult form. This is from uh, Su Lambano, Lambano. Lambano means to take or receive. And it is in the future middle form right here. Sul, the Sul on the front is from Sun. And the new coalesces with the lambda sound. And so it's replicated by a, a double lambda there. And so this verb is it's kind of interesting because it can can is often used in a in a kind of violent way to uh, sense to take custody seize grasp it is used at the beginning of John's gospel in the prologue where it says that the darkness couldn't comprehend the light and the verb comprehend is is used the same verb sum lambano, but then it it is see it can be used to capture an animal, but it has this idiomatic sense of to become pregnant or conceive of a woman. But I'm wondering what's going on in the use of the language, like why this kind of strong verb is the capture is used of pregnancy. I, I'm intrigued by that. There's probably um, there's probably a, a a reason for that. I don't know what that is, but in the cultural conception, is it kind of the capturing of a woman to, to get her to that place of being pregnant? Or is it is it uh, understanding that the womb is like capturing this baby, the baby is inside the walls of the womb? Because notice that it says that you will conceive in gastri, that's probably part of the idiom, in the stomach, literally. And, but it means womb. So here we'd have to research a little bit more ancient conceptions of the, the female body and their understanding of anatomy to maybe understand some of this language, uh, some of this idiom. 
So this is future tense, middle. You will conceive in your belly, in your womb, and you will bear. Um, this is from tiptoe. And this probably this is a second heirs verb, but it has a lower frequency, so you don't learn it. So tiptoe goes to tech. Uh, there's the second era stem. This is a future middle once again. The sigma of the ending is adding with the kappa uh, to form the C in the future. And this is a second singular form. Uh, uh, so you have some, se, sate, somatha, sestha, sonte. Those are the future middle endings. And here, the, um, the middle ending for the future second, second is a sigma eta with an iota. Originally, it was a se, but that uh, this, the sigma drops out and forms an eta with the iota subscript. You will bear huion, a son, ke, and you will call him. To onama aftu, uh, the name you call his name Jesus. Yesun, Yesun. Those are both accusative. Onama, Yesun. This verb takes a, is here taking a double object, double accusative. You will call the name. The name will be called Jesus. And again, when I think of verbs that take double accusatives, one of the objects is internal to the action. It is produced in the, in the action of the verb and the other object starts outside and then goes through the process called external, starts outside the action of the verb, goes through the action of the verb and comes out the internal object. And in this case, name is more of the outside thing that then goes through the process of of receiving a call, a called a name, so calling that name, and then the object that comes out, the internal object is Yezun, Jesus. So you will call his name Jesus. So these are predictive futures, probably, like this is what will happen to you. And then the Kalesis moves into, you call, that moves into more probably an imperative, um, a future of imperative, imperative use of the future tense. You will call his name Jesus. And then we have 32 and following, we're going to get a description, a rich description of who Jesus is and what he's going to be about. And uh, what was Mary thinking when this was going on, this description it is interesting. There is no connector there. So we have what's called a syndeton. So verse 32 is connected to 31. There's no explicit marker of connection. And so that may suggest a, a bit of a break. Uh, it may suggest that we're getting uh, a direct abutment to Jesus. And so what follows then is an elaboration of who this Jesus is. That could be part of the motivation for uh, Ascendaton, that, you know, his name, you know, the name of Jesus, names are always significant for one. So Jesus is, is uh, Joshua, basically, and it means salvation, right? So that's the name of Jesus is, is salvation. And so the nature of the salvation that Jesus is bringing then is going to be explained in, in what follows. So I think uh, the Ascendaton is, is significant here, either to connect the idea directly as like elaborating on Jesus. So there's a move from a general name to then the particulars of that name, or it, there's just a bit of a, a section break uh, within this unit to then elaborate on, on more who Jesus is. Because basically we're going from a second person perspective. You, this is what will happen to you to now this is who he is. All right. So 32. Utos este megas que hui os ups istu kalitheisete. 
kedosi avto kurios o theos ton thronon David to patros avtu. All right. This one will be great. This one will be great. And the son of the most high will be called. So will he will be called son of the most high. Yeah. And so there is uh, an interesting change in order here. And I can turn on a drawing mode. And this is a great um, kind of mode. I can start to draw. This is a genitive modifying huios. Now, the, the sentence order is changing a bit. The default should be verb, subject, object. That's probably the default for Greek that the verb typically is first, then subject, then objects. And so when you start to see variations in this, from this default word ordering, two things, some options, you have to consider some of the options. One, there's focus on the fronted element, which is here, son of the most high. And most high, upsistu, is a an adjective which is acting as a substantive and obviously is referring to, to God. Or uh, there could be some attention drawn to the, to the verb. You know, so what's happening is you have a switching of the orders. I'm trying to show a crisscross here. So you have a switching of verb, subject, object. And so there's extra attention drawn to one or maybe both of these elements now, I think what's happening is that there's special attention being drawn to huios, which uh, huios ups istu, son of the most high, because it has a natural prominence because this child is in relation to the most high. That is a naturally prominent idea. Like when you start, start talking about a, a child in relation to God, particularly God as profiled, construed as the most high God, there is a lot of prominence there. So the, the stress in this case is on, I believe, on the subject because it is put into a forward position and already has some natural prominence because of the, the ideas there. Now, most high, when you refer to God as most high, that can be particularly relevant in pagan contexts, which is rather interesting. Uh, when you're talking about a, um, a pantheon of deities, when there's a lot of deities out there, to refer to God as the most high one would have more meaning and relevance to that climate, uh, to that situation, that kind of worldview where you have a plethora of divinities and that kind of thing. And actually, you can do word study on oops, oops, istos, and where that's used to describe God. And you can see that it's often found in pagan contexts, contexts where a paganism worldview is prevalent. So it's kind of interesting that it's used here, in my view. Um, yeah. All right. So he shall be called. He will be called. Now, this huios is a nominative of appellation. Appellation means naming. Technically, it's almost like a direct object, but it's in the nominative case. The subject case, huios, is, is the subject case. And the reason it's in the subject case, the nominative case, is because it's working with a verb of calling. And so this is a special use of the nominative case called a nominative of appellation. All right. And he will give him. The Lord, God, the Lord who is God. And here I can put a little equal sign because you have apposition there. This is the main verb. This is from didomi, future, uh, third singular from didomi. Uh, this is the, the uh, direct object, the dotted underlines for direct objects. I'm doing some marking here. Uh, no, I don't need to do, do that. That shouldn't be uh, highlighted there or underlined. So uh, the Lord God, well, yeah, should as subject, I guess. The Lord God, who is God, will give to him the throne 
of David. Dawid is the genitive modifying thronon, the throne of David, uh, his father. Now that's appositional. So tu patros is referring back to David in what's called apposition. So I'm using equal signs. And then, <clears throat> and then um, Avtu is uh, the generative modifier, uh, David's father. All right. So I'd exit uh, the drawing mode, but you can look at it. Uh, I think that's it. Yeah, that's it. Now, there's some big ideas going on here. So this asterisk is taking us to the Nesselalan apparatus. And here we can then quickly look at verses where prophecies are being made, big ideas are being made that are being fulfilled here. And so here's, this goes 2 Samuel and talking about this descendant of David. And this gets picked up in Isaiah. Uh, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it. So it was expected that there was going to be a, uh, a messianic person, uh, Messiah, in the line of David, who is going to have a kingdom set up. Yep. And so these are some verses that uh, this angelic speech is sp speaking into. Yeah. So Gabriel. And by the way, this brings up an interesting point. You know, to speak in the tongues or languages of angels you know, when angels are speaking in scripture, they're not speaking a foreign language. They're speaking elevated prose language. And so anyway, people will talk about an angelic prayer language. I don't think that exists. I think what's what angelic speech is merely elevated, theological, poetic speech. And maybe, maybe even there's a beauty of, of harmony or something like that. You know, like if they're singing, you know, maybe we could think of angel speech like that. But for them to be speaking in a, a special language, when they come and speak to people, it's in it's in a language that they know. Anyway, that gets into First Corinthians 14 and my interpretation there of tongue speaking, which I understand as language speaking, the gift of languages. But uh, here we see elevated angelic speech, which is drawing in scriptural ideas uh, to speak to, to Mary. And so, yeah, this is amazing. So verse 33, we get more, uh, more description of who Jesus is and he will, he will reign, epitone, ikon, Jacob, over the house of Jacob. And I'll turn on the drawing mode again. It was kind of fun. Uh, Forever, east to Ionas, he will rule over the house of Jacob forever. So here's the subject, and let me see. We'll get into the drawing mode. Oh, it's not letting me. Oh, that's pressing. I got to press the right buttons. So here it is. Uh, he will reign. I cut off the endings. Over the house of Jacob. So prepositional phrases get put inside of parentheses, and I include modifiers that belong to that cluster together. So Jacob, Jacob, which by the way, we translate James. Uh, James is really Jacob. So this is Jacob though. Um, over the house of Jacob, he'll rule over the house of Jacob forever, east to, for the ages. And <clears throat> of his kingdom, oh, this is fun, of his kingdom, adverbs, you circle, verbs, you underline, uh, there will be no end. Now, tes basileas of two, and of his kingdom is actually modifying Telios, telos, telos, telos is the subject, the end of his kingdom, there will not be, there will not be an end of his kingdom. 
This is a great example of discontinuous constituents. It's called discontinuous constituents. So telos, end, goes with of his kingdom. That is a conceptual idea that belongs together. Typically in Greek, you have the head noun, end, will come first, and then the genitive noun will follow. If you want to front the genitive, that's typically for effect, some kind of effect. And in this case, not only do you have a fronting, you actually have of the, of the kingdom, you actually place it on the other side of the verb. So the verb typically, things that belong together usually are clustered on either side of the verb. But when you separate modifiers from what's the, the head, the noun in the phrase, when you separate modifiers from what they modify, that is for effect. It's called discontinuous elements. And here, I would say the stress is going to be on the fronted uh, idea. But it could be on both. Uh, his kingdom. So he's going to be ruling and of his kingdom, there will be no end. So what that does is it, it play, it keeps the focus on kingdom, his, his ruling and kingdom. And you have a bit of a repetition here in the root of, of Basilevsi and kingdom. And so, yeah, you, you have, um, you have um, repetition there and prominence on that. All right, so I've got a question. Yeah, someone asks, is this an exception to Apollonius's canon, the head noun and genitive not having both, or either having both the article or not having the article? Uh, yeah, I think it would be, yeah, it would be, it would be an exception to that here because telos, you'd expect it to have the article to, to telos, but it doesn't, and then its object does. So, yeah, there is a bit of a, an exception here. There is an exception to that canon. And by the way, I don't like that canon. I don't think it's very helpful because there are motivations for lack or presence of the article. And so when I... When I do my sabbatical research, hopefully I can get to that. I'll be looking carefully at that rule and um, why there are why there are violations of it. So, yeah, I guess as a you know as a pattern. But then when the, there's violations to it, we need to pay attention. So because the taste basileas has the article, you would think that to telos would. Yeah. And it may be that, uh, for example, the, the motivation here is telos is a new idea because we haven't the end of a kingdom. We haven't had that introduced here. So you introduce a new idea <clears throat> by lack of the article. You introduce a participant or an entity into the discourse without an article. So since this is a new idea, it, it shouldn't have an article, but the, the idea of kingdom has already been introduced. This is a known entity, a known thing in the discourse, because we've just talked about him ruling. So that needs to have an article. And, and part of the knownness of it is also signaled by the fact that it's his kingdom. I mean, the fact that it has a pronoun. So there's a rule with pronouns with articles as well. And so this, this helps communicate that this is a known entity, even though the end idea, the end of it is not a, a known entity, but it should be introduced without the article because it's a new unknown entity and idea. Yeah. All right. Well, I hope you're enjoying this and maybe we can get to another couple verses. <clears throat> I'll leave the uh, drawing on. Connectors, by the way, I put boxes around. I <clears throat> haven't been doing that. So put boxes around con conjunctions. Next step. Now, this is the next step in the, the, the unfolding scene. It can, it's, it's signaled as not conjoining it as like an unfolding, but there's a distinction made here, like something new is being added. 
to it in, in a way that's marked and or next or then perhaps even a but a slight adversative sense that doesn't primarily mark contrast but it can be used in context where there's some contrast only because in the sense that there's there's some discontinuity being marked and at this point in this all these great things are being described about Jesus but Mary said to the angel Epen, Epen, uh, second aorist, third singular, proston angelu, angelon, proston. So here's where, you know, before we saw a dative case said to somebody, you could use the dative case in Greek. Instead, we're getting an elevation to, to have the pros with the accusative. And I think that the pros construction as opposed to the dative construction is elevating this exchange for some reason there's some kind of intensity pros seems to mark proximity uh, but there's something more intense that's going on here and we're going to see that mary is is really puzzled post she says post este tuto how is this possible Epi andra u gnosko, since I don't have a husband, since I don't know a man. I mean, this is a legitimate question. Post. So, post is, so here we're getting, uh, I'm going to mark the subordinate clause. We have, I, I mark subordinate clauses with brackets. And if we have more than one, we can start to number them. But it's, it's going to, and we do here, we actually have more than one. The epi is also marking a subordinate clause. So here I need to close out the one subordinate clause and then the other. So this is subordinate clause two ending, and this is subordinate clause one ending. By the way, if you can do this marking, like I encourage you to do, like I, I teach this in my Kine Greek grammar, my Quine Greek grammar. When I teach Greek, I have the students learn this. It is an awesome marking method like it'll help you think through the text very well and understand what's going on it's a it's a pretty simple method how will this be how will this be remember when zacharias john's father was this angel the angel gabriel predicted he, he and elizabeth would have a baby he his response was kata to este Katato, not post, not post. His question was not how, but according to what. And if you look at that episode uh, from a, a week or two prior, I go into explaining when I saw that it's a different construction and we have to kind of think, you know, why is he asking it this way? And he received a kind of a judgment, right? He became mute and because of his questioning uh, and lack of understanding and trust, really. Whereas Mary doesn't receive any kind of judgment or consequence, because even though she's asking a similar type of question, it's a different kind of question. And her circumstance is different because she does not have a husband. She does not have a husband. So here's how you mark up this sentence. Um, typically I would put a box around that, but it's going to make it too messy. But epi, uh, epi is interesting too. Uh, epi marks strengthening. And, you know, I think it's more marked than an OT. OT would be. OT could also be used here. Gar could be used here, but it would make it a, like a separate propositional statement. And so it would change kind of the rhetoric and the style of it. So gar marks strengthening, epi marks strengthening, but as a subordinate clause, OT can also be used in strengthening statements, but there's slight differences. And so when I see connectors used, or when I see different option construction options, and I see one being deployed, I'm asking why? And what is the, the distinct semantic semantic contribution of epi and what's the pragmatic effect to understand relative prominence levels in the discourse. And already I'm seeing, you know, when I start seeing one kind of nuance, I'm looking for others. And usually 
the prominence effects are not singular. Usually there's more than one construction happening that point towards the prominence. And so in this case, I see the pros construction with the, the, the indirect object spoke to the angel. That's elevating it. And then I see the epi, that's elevating it. It's not simply an OT. And um, yeah, so this is this is a, a very serious, it's a pregnant question that's loaded, uh, pun intended. Uh, and, and she has legitimate questions. How is this going to happen? I don't, I don't, I don't know a man. <laughs> so I'm a, I'm a virgin, you know, she's basically saying. And um, so now the, uh, so I think we've hit on these, this is an, this is a direct question. How will this be? Since I don't have a husband, a little bit of fronting on the Andra as because uh, it's violating the VSO once again. It's the object. So the object Andra is placed forward. There's a switching of <clears throat> object and verb. And so you, we have to account for that. And I think here the prominent thing is a man, a husband, I am not knowing knowing in the biblical sense of knowing, um, having sexual relations. Now, here we see the angel's response, ke, and. And we have this interesting discourse marker, uh, apokritis, apokritis, that's from apokrinome, a middle form verb of taking back control, respond back. It's not enough to say answer, because in fact, this verb is used when there's no question being asked. I could take you to places in the Gospels where something happens and then someone responds back to an action. And so there's, it's more than answering a question. In fact, when this is used for answering a, a question, it's used in the middle voice. And again, I presented a paper on this, but when it's used in the passive formation, it's taking back control. And sometimes the taking or taking control or taking back control. Sometimes the control is slight. In other words, <clears throat> the conversation and the point being made is going one way and the person responding back is, is going to take it a different way. Now, this verb can be used in, in more congenial, uh, like friendly con conversations Sometimes it can be used in, in, in ideologically charged conversations where the taking back control is very strong. So interesting study to look at this verb. And here it's being used as a circumstantial participle. I put it in brackets because it's providing a framework uh, for the main verb and answering back or responding the angel said to her. Now notice that he doesn't say pros avte, avtein. He says simply the dative. It's simply the dative. So what's the difference in these two constructions? I think the, the angel is not depicted as intensifying the conversation, but he's staying calm I think is what is de depicted is, is, is it's not, his response is not an intensive escalation response that pros could signify. Uh, instead, he's, he says to her, avte, dative. Pnevma agion, epelevsete epise. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And here I have to turn off the marking. Holy Spirit will come upon you. This is the subject. Subject here. Yeah, some of you need to go. Yeah, you're welcome. So uh, we'll finish with this verse. Uh, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. Ke dunamis upsistu. Power of the Most High will overshadow you. And so this verb takes the dative case. So here's the 
the subject, dunamis, upsistu, power of the most high will overshadow you. Epi on skiadzo. Skiadzo, skia is, is a darkening kind of thing. Darkness, skia. So skiadzo is the verb. It's a causative verb to darken. And then epi adds upon this. So he will overshadow you. <clears throat> Therefore, dio. Now dio is marking new, I think a new, dis- new development <clears throat> as well as an inference, but I'd have to go back and check in my Koine Greek grammar, uh, go back to Levin- Stephen Levinson's article. Uh, therefore, also, that which is born, holy, that holy thing being born, and it's not a thing. The reason this is neuter, togenothmenon, agion, is because it's assuming the word technon, child, which is neuter. So this is neuter in construction because it's assuming technon. That that holy child assume being born will be called, will be called Huios Theu, the son of God, the son of God. Therefore, yeah. So this child, the angel says, basically, this child is going to come about because of the Holy Spirit and the Lord, the power of the most high. So, how is Mary, who doesn't know a man, conceived? Well, God is going to work it out. It's going to be the Holy Spirit and power. And the Holy Spirit and power go hand in hand together. So somehow, in God's infinite power and ability, he is able to make this happen. And so this holy begotten child, assumed child, this holy begotten child, this is a uh, attributive participle. Uh, hagion is a substantive adjective with assumed child. That's why this is all neuter. Will be called future passive of kaleo. And then we have son of God. Will be called son of God. All right. See, yeah, someone was asking what is the, uh, if there's a reference to Genesis. Yeah, which is interesting. I don't see it. Yeah, I don't see it. I think that's a that's a really provocative. So what people are wondering, they're asking, is is there are the textual additions taking us to consider Genesis one one and two, where the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the earth, and really hovering means like brooding, like a an animal broods, and so that's a very powerful image. <clears throat> Very possibly, there is something like this happening. The power of the Most High overshadowing you, overshadowing. Yeah. So we'll have to stop here and we'll continue with uh, verse 36. So, one last question. Yeah, the question is so, is there any basis to the tradition of seeing Genesis's creation in parallel to the womb of Mary? Wow. I think this verse might suggest that. Yeah. The miracle of creation, the power of creation taking place, the new creation really taking place in in the womb, the watery, moist womb of Mary. Yeah, very powerful to think about. God entering our world uh, inside the womb. Yeah, that's beautiful to think about. It's amazing. I was just at the dentist the other day, and and the the dental hygienist. Maybe she'll watch this video. I, she's uh, struggling with her faith. and was raised in the church, but she still reads the Bible a bit. But she's confused about it. <clears throat> Reading some C.S. Lewis stuff, so I, I'm encouraged by that. I don't know her really well. It's the first time I met her, and she had a mask on, so I don't know what she looks like, but. She was, you know, one question she had was, why did God have to have Jesus die for us? You know, couldn't God have forgiveness in some other way? And my quick answer was, well, he provides a model for us. And, um, but, you know, my teeth are getting clean, so I wasn't able to talk very much. But I don't think I came to the point of, I think I said it briefly, but I would have loved to talk about more, is God is so close to us. 
God comes to us like and shows his love. And he, he just, this is so intimate and close for God to be come in the form of a baby, come and, and be that close uh, is, is amazing. So the incarnation is described here, the start of the incarnation. And it's, it's a marvel. It's a marvel. Well, well thank you uh, for joining and uh, look forward to uh, seeing you next time. Take care. Interested in growing your ancient language skills, but not sure where to start? Glow's House can help. From illustrated readers and short stories to lexicons and grammars, Glow's House offers a variety of resources for beginning, intermediate, and experienced ancient language learners. Head to glosahouse.com today. Glow's House, language resources for the global community.